The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey guys, how we doing? Guys tired of sitting up and standing down? You guys are going to be ready for a nap for sure after church today. I'll just sit and stand in. Um, so let's stand one more time. I'm just kidding. I'm joking. I'm kidding. I'm the worship pastor, so I make you sit and stand more than anybody. It's what I do. Um, guys, real quick before we get started, um, here's the thing. We listen a lot more when uh, we actually open our ears than when someone yells. Um, and so this morning, I want to take 20 seconds and I want you to take 20, whatever, whatever it takes to prepare your heart to hear from God this morning, because I, I don't want the pressure, nor can I even carry the weight of actually trying to speak life into you. Only God can do that, and he can only do that if you're listening. Does that make sense? So let's take 20 seconds, and would you actually just pray a prayer to yourself in your seat um, that God would speak to you this morning, and, and then uh, we'll, we'll get right to work. So 20 seconds, here we go. God, I have no delusions that I am capable of speaking life. Only you, Holy Spirit, can bring the answers to our questions this morning. Holy Spirit, only you can, can pour like water into our dry souls. Father, we just, we come here this morning, God, and we long to hear from our Father. We long to hear from our shepherd, our king, our maker, our friends. And so, Father, we take a moment to quiet our hearts and to remind ourselves that we are nothing without you. We are dust, God. Holy Spirit, would you bring the dry bones that I bring and turn them into life? Take my words that mean nothing and transform them into everything because they're your words. And God, may we approach your scriptures with awe and with reverence just longing to know, God, what you have to say to us, Father. So God, we look to you now and we just pray for wisdom and the gospel to be given to us clearly this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you guys have your Bibles, Ecclesiastes, you say, where is that? What is that? That is in the Old Testament after the book of Psalms, after the book of Proverbs, before the book of Song of Solomon. If you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up high in the air. This good-looking gentleman over here going to bring you a Bible that is yours if you want it. So if anyone needs a Bible, hands up. Ecclesiastes, before the New Testament, Old Testament, before the prophets, before Isaiah, before Ezekiel. <clears throat> All right. So I have a two-year-old daughter named Myla. You guys might have seen her cruising around the church. She loves it here. This is like her second home. She thinks she owns the place. Typical pastor kid thing. Um, she is the cutest little girl. She's got long brown hair. Um, she's just an absolute blast. And in this season of being two, um, we've really begun to meet her. 
You know what I mean? Like she went from being like this infant that just wanted to eat to being like this human, you know, this little, this little person that has a personality and all these different things. And so it's been really fun kind of getting to observe who my daughter is and have actual conversations with her. The other night I got, got, I got home from work late and I just, I had this, this full-on conversation with my daughter. Like, what'd you do today? Play the toys. What are you reading? A book, you know? It was just this crazy, this crazy cute thing just melted my, um, my heart. But one of the funniest things that I, I've noticed about my daughter, and if you have kids in here, you totally get this is that my daughter, one minute, will be the happiest little human in the world, right? Singing and and talking and just saying the same thing over and over again, talking about whatever, her best friends and all this kind of stuff. She's just the happiest little girl. And then one small, seemingly insignificant, tiny thing will happen. And my daughter just explodes with anger or explodes with pain or explodes with sorrow. She just begins to weep and she cries and she screams. And as a 26-year-old and as a father, and I'm sort of, as an adult, I'm, st- I'm sitting there looking at my daughter like, really? Like, I, you know, it's usually something ridiculous. Like she, she got her toys taken away or we said no, or she had to eat, you know, blueberries instead of strawberries, or her brother, you know, was chewing on her Peppa Pig character or whatever it is. I mean, who, who knows Peppa Pig for you guys like a British cartoon. It's awesome. She, she talked with a British accent for the first like six months of her life. It was awesome. Um, so in these insignificant things, and I sit there and I think, Milo, what is wrong? Why are you so upset? What, what, what is causing you to be so frustrated all of a sudden? How can she go from being so happy to being so mad so quick? And the reality is this, we are all exactly the same way. We just have learned, letter, we've learned a little bit more of social epness, right? We know we can't just explode. But most of life for us is either super happy or super upset. Let me explain it. Every, every single year that you live in life, okay, is really could be split into two categories. You have two settings, okay, two settings. Setting number one is discontented, and setting number two is distracted, Okay, so all of your life, you're one of these two things. You are either distracted from your discontentment or you're discontent. You say, Sam, that's such a generalization. It's so true, though, okay? And let me unpack it. It's so true. This morning, I'm sitting at my desk. I'm studying. I'm having a great time. I got music going, and I'm, I'm kind of praying in and out, going through my notes, and just excited to teach and be with you guys. And, and as I'm preaching, Jeff comes in real quick to tell me something funny, and I turn around and go to turn my music down, and I spill my coffee, okay? Now, what happened before my coffee spilled? I was distracted, okay? I was busy, I was thinking about stuff, life's good, everything's fine, I'm thinking about things. And then as soon as I spill my coffee all over my books and all over my mouse and all over my computer and all over everything in my Bible, instantly dissatisfied. How quickly it changes, right? But the reality is, is I was, I'm, we're always dissatisfied unless we're distracted. You tracking with me? We're always dissatisfied unless we're distracted. This morning at 4.30, um, my alarm went off and I hit snooze. And just in that moment, I went from being distracted, because I was sleeping, uh, to dissatisfied when my alarm went off. And then I hit snooze, and I was distracted again, because I went back to sleep. And then I woke up, and I was dissatisfied again, because I, I had to wake up and get out of bed. It's just this constant back and forth. Dissatisfied, distracted. Dissatisfied, distracted. In my life, everything that I've done in my life could be put into one of those categories. Now, as people, as Americans especially, We are fantastic. In fact, we are professionals at distracting ourselves from our dissatisfaction with life. We're professionals. In fact, our economy, the very core of it, is really centered around this ability to spend money on distracting ourselves. We're so, so good at it. TV, 
hobbies, smartphones, food, sex, shopping, comfort, video games, all of these things, good things, yes, but ultimately we do them because we're trying to distract ourselves from the fact that life isn't quite what we thought it was going to be. It's not quite what we thought it was going to be. So we fill and we bombard our day with as much distraction as we possibly can. We can't just drive in the car. We have to drive in the car listening to radio while we're texting because we have to distract ourselves from the fact that we're dissatisfied. And if we drive in the car and listen to our own thoughts, it might remind us that, oh yeah, I'm not really that happy with my life. I'm not really that happy at all. Life didn't quite pan out the way that I thought it was going to. Now, here's what I love about the Bible, okay? The Bible is timeless. You know that? The Bible is timeless. The Bible transcends time. It's literally something that was written uh, over a large period of time and ultimately thousands of years ago, but yet it speaks to the same exact issues that we have today. Our culture is so different than the culture of the time that the Bible was written, but yet these truths speak so crystal clearly right into where we're at today. And so, with having said that, the book of Ecclesiastes is intriguing, okay? It's intriguing because it was written literally thousands of years ago, but it helps us to understand the why behind our dissatisfaction. If there's one thing I can say that every single one in this room can relate to me on is the fact that so much of our life has been spent being dissatisfied, discontent, unhappy. When you're a kid, you spend most of your days just knowing that the rest of your life will be better than now, Right? Or when I'm an adult, or when I have my driver's license, or when I go to school, or when I get my job. But then as you get older, you begin to realize that this, this sort of pattern of discontentment is just life. It's just life. This feeling of like, oh, it's, it's, it's actually just this way kind of hits you gradually. And nothing embodies that more than the book of Ecclesiastes. And I want to say just, just quickly, this sermon is, is not written just primarily to Christians, okay? This sermon is written to human beings, so if there's anyone in this room this morning that's not a Christian, I want to say, this is, this is for you as well, okay? The Bible is so clear, and the gospel is so powerful because it speaks not just to Christians, but it speaks to human beings. It speaks to the very core and the very nature of what it is to be a person. And, and it brings observations that everyone can relate with, that everyone can understand. And the one thing I love about this book, is, and we'll get into it, is that it's raw, The book of Ecclesiastes is raw. It's just life. It's Solomon, who's the writer, taking a minute to observe life and seeing it in its raw and honest nature, and then taking his observations of really the garbage and the rawness and the vanity and the pointlessness and and the discouraging parts of life, and then bringing hope through that. That's what the Bible does. The Bible doesn't shy away from the hard things. The Bible doesn't shy away from how to deal with pain and suffering. The Bible plunges right into the garbage of it and comes out the other end with hope. So what I want to do with you this morning is I want to plunge in using the book of Ecclesiastes into the hurt and the pain and the garbage and the dissatisfaction of this life and come out the other side, hopefully, with hope. That's what the gospel does. That's why we can talk to our neighbors about it. Okay? That's why we can talk to our coworkers about it. Because we don't have to say, oh, everything's roses. It's not. It's not. We live in a messed up world, and we can share that. And this book is all about that. So let me just, a side note, this, this is really just kind of a teaser for you. I, I'm hoping and praying that, that if I can whet your appetite for this book, that you'll come out on Wednesday nights, because not this week, but starting 
The week after, we're going to be looking into this book in depth, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and I would love for you guys to join. So if this intrigues you, if this is an interesting book to you as we study just a small portion of it, come out on Wednesdays um, and check it out. The book of Ecclesiastes was written, as I said, it was written a long time ago. It was written by a man who was a king. Solomon was the son of David, if you're familiar with your Jewish history. Now, Solomon was known and considered to be the wisest man of his age, Okay, so he had plenty of wisdom. He had plenty of know-how about life and the way that things worked. He'd lived many years. It's actually interesting when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you notice this change in tone from when he wrote his other books. He writes Song of Solomon and he's very you know, romantic and, and sort of like a very whimsical figure who, who sweeps his, his girl off of his feet. And, and it's very, this is a romantic book. And then you read Proverb and it's very, it's very like, this is how you should live and this is how you should order your life. And then as an old man, he gets to Ecclesiastes and he becomes very cynical. He like transfer. it's like life let him down so many times and everything that he thought was gonna be awesome let him down so many times that he now kind of becomes this like bitter man. You know what I picture him as? I picture him as like Luke Skywalker at the end of the new Star Wars movie. He's like just this guy that's like, like he's got just rink, you know, it's just, you know, like, oh, sorry, if you haven't seen the movie, uh, nobody dies, don't worry. Um, so got people, people plugging their ears up here. Okay, it's, it just reminds me of that. He's like, he's like become this kind of embittered, like negative man who just kind of was like, life just isn't quite what I thought it was. And Ecclesiastes is almost just sort of him just blah, just letting out his observations and his frustrations about the world that we lived, that, that he's lived in the world that we live in. So with all that said, by way of intro, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 9. I just picked this little chunk that I thought was so intriguing in hopes that you would come out and read, uh, come out and study the rest of the book with us. So chapter 3, verse 9. We'll read it together and then we'll dig into it. It says this, what gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that, who, that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been and that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Isn't that an intriguing piece of scripture? Like that's the kind of thing you read and you're like, I have to read that again because I don't quite get that. What is he talking about? I love studying intriguing pieces of scripture because there's always nuggets to be found in there. What's really happening here is Solomon is observing life and then he's asking a question about life, okay? He says, I'm, I want to just understand humanity and look at it and then ask a question about it. And then he answers the question. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to jump in with him. We're going to observe life. We're going to ask a question. And then we're going to hopefully, uh, through the gospel, answer that question. So I want to start by looking a little closer at verse 11. So if you have it, keep your finger there. We may flip around a little bit in the, in, in the Bible, but keep your finger in Ecclesiastes because we're really going to work through this and look at each verse um, and give each verse attention. So verse 11, he starts off by saying this, and this is probably the most interesting verse of this. 
He says in verse 11, he says, He has, God, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. What an interesting thing to say. Solomon says, God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that, in other words, knowing that, he can't find out how it all goes together and what it's all for and what the purpose all is. Why would God do that? This is the question that he asked. Why would God put heaven into man's heart? Well, first of all, what is he even talking about, putting heaven into man's heart? Keep your finger in Ecclesiastes. Flip to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to do a little bit of groundwork here. So try to track with me. Try to follow with me. This is one of the coolest understandings, I think, that I've, that I've ever been um, privileged to, to, to hear about this week is in Genesis chapter 2. So keeping your finger there, flip on over. It'll be up on the screen as well. It says this, then the Lord God formed the man of dust. Okay, formed the man of what? Formed the man of what? I want you to remember that word. From the what? Okay, but from the ground, the dust, same difference, right? From the ground, from the dust, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, this is a verse you could just read and blast through when you're reading Genesis 2, but this is probably one of the most incredible moments in history to stop and think about. No doubt this is the moment that Solomon was thinking about when he penned this verse. This is what's happening here. God takes literally, what? Dust. Dust and breathes himself into that dust. Now what that means is, you need to know this about yourself, what that means is that you were constructed of two things. You were constructed of dust, or dirt, or earth, and you were, just, you were constructed of heaven. You were made of God himself, breathing his eternality into your being, okay? He took his image and poured it into in his eternality, in his heavenly being, and poured it into absolutely nothing, dirt, okay? Dirt. So if you ever feel like two people, if you ever feel this inner conflict inside, this, this sort of just like back and forth turmoil, it's because you're made of two things. You're made of heaven and you are made of earth. You are a mixture of two things, created out of two separate things. If you feel like earth can't satisfy you, it's because you were created with eternal longings. God made you of two separate things. Now, take a, a little trip to the right, Genesis chapter 3, verses 17, and let's see what happens next. After God breathes himself into the dirts, chapter 3, verse 17 says this, and to Adam he said, now, the fall has happened, Eve and, and Adam have chosen sin over God, and this is sort of God's sentence to man. He says, this is what's going to happen because of your sin, because of your choice to eat the fruit. He says, and to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. Cursed is the what? The ground. We're dust, absolutely. Cursed is the ground. Because of you, in pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What's happening here? So God, again, takes something meaningless like dirt. He breathes himself into it, giving it meaning, okay? And that's where you get mankind, okay? A mixture of heaven, a mixture of earth. Now, God's sentence to man because of sin was to disconnect man from the heaven side and leaving him just as dirt, okay? But in the, in the process, leaving some, 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 some footprints, if you will, that he had been there. So now we're, we're, we're this beings made up of two things, but at the fall, God disconnected himself from man in a way to where now we're just dirt without God. We're just dirt without God. So what is it that gives the earth, the dirt, the dust value? God did when he breathed himself into it. Without the breath of God, what is man? We're just dirt. We're nothing. We're earth, Okay. As Solomon will go on to say, we're beasts. We're, we're, we're without the spirit of God, without the breath of God, we're nothing. What did God curse here in Genesis? The ground. He cursed the ground. And then lastly, and most importantly, what did God say a man would look to to satisfy him now? Dirt. So when we were in the garden, God designed us to be with Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to be satisfied by Jesus, to commune with Jesus in the cool of the garden. We walked with him. And then at the fall, God said, now you are no longer going to be satisfied by me. You will look to the earth to satisfy you. The dust will be the means by which you attempt to achieve peace and selah. Our curse is that God removed himself and all that was left was dust. And in doing so, he left his imprints in us. He left a hole. Now trying to fill that hole with dust is like if someone emptied Critter Lake and said, here's a cup of water and a spoon, go fill it up, right? We're missing a huge part of who we are apart from God. We're just dirt, we're just created beings. And because of that, we look to the earth to satisfy us, don't we? Now, connect the dots here, okay? When I'm talking about dust, I'm talking about the world, the things of the world, the carnal, physical uh, things that, that we all look to. God said that would happen in Genesis. He said, your, your, your work is not going to be able to satisfy you. It's going to be choked out by thorns. It's going to be, you're going to work by the sweat of your brow, attempting to be satisfied by the dirt, and it's not going to happen because I am separated from the equation, because I'm removed from the equation. One of my favorite lines in the book, or in the, in the, the movie Gladiator, if you've seen that movie, is when he's just about to go fight the Caesar at the end, and, and uh, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but he says, we are but shadows and dust, Maximus. We mortals are but shadows and dust, right? This is all that we are now. We're sort of this echo, this remnant of what God intended us for us to be. We're like this shell of being. That's why you see people walking around that are miserable, that are not saved. Because they're sort of this remnant, this echo. They're dust. There's no life. There's no spirit in them. That's why when you remember your life before you were saved, before you were Christian, you felt like you were just dirt, just nothing, no life, no joy, no hope, just blown here and there, 
trying and trying to get the world to satisfy you, and it didn't work, which is shadows and dust. Mankind who was designed eternal was now trapped in the temporal. Are you following me? You've all experienced it. We all know. Man who was given heavenly appetites now must eat of the unsatisfying temporal fruit of this earth. Our world is so good at blaming pain on our surroundings, is it not? But we Christians know better. I'm miserable because I was raised wrong. I'm unhappy because I'm poor. If I had a job, if I had that car, if I had this, everyone blames our miserable longing. Everyone blames our ache and our soul. Everyone blames our discontentment on our surroundings. Well, you know, it was because my mom didn't hug me enough as a kid. No, you're just broken, right? You're broken. You're dust without the image of God being breathed into you, without the spirit of God, pardon me, being breathed into you anymore. As Ephesians 2 says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You're a corpse. There's no life in you. There's nothing there. And we make excuses. Well, I'm, I'm unhappy because of this. No, you're unhappy because you're broken. The most depressed people that I know live very, quote unquote, happy lives. Isn't that weird? Some of the most depressed people, some of the most depressed high school students are the ones whose parents are rich who go to private school and have their car bought for them. I've just been running with a guy who, who, who told me that six months ago his son just committed suicide. And he said he couldn't believe it. There was nothing that made him think for a minute his son would ever do that. He went to school, he went to work, he went to the gym, he was a happy kid, everything seemed fine. And on the inside he was aching because he's dust because there's no life there. And he's searching for the world to make him happy and it's not working. Isn't that interesting? Our work never ends. Now, this is exactly, going back to our, our, our text, this is exactly what Solomon is saying. It's exactly what he's pointing out. Look at it again. He says, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He's put eternity into our hearts. That's what he's saying. God has left this imprint, this longing in our hearts for eternity. And then look at verse 9 of our text, going, going back a couple verses, Ecclesiastes 3.9. He says this, he says, What gain has the worker from his toil? So he's just kind of expounding on this, this thought, this, 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 this uh, idea that we're just sort of dust. What gain has the worker from his toil? We chase heaven through work, don't we? We chase heaven through work. Maybe I can feel like I'm not dust if I work hard enough. We set unrealistic expectations and goals for ourselves that we can't meet. We break our backs. We kill ourselves daily trying to work to get back to heaven, and we can't because we're dust. And man has done incredible things because of this longing, haven't we? Man has gone to the moon. Man has created nuclear weapons, learned to fly, created computers, vaccines, achieved physical feats that no one could have imagined that human beings ever could have done, all because they're chasing heaven. All because they know they were not designed to be dust and they're tired of it. We'll do anything. 
In Genesis, we read the story of the Tower of Babel where the men literally came together and, the, and, and, and they, they joined together and said, let us build a tower to the heavens to establish our greatness. They were trying to get back to where they belonged. This idea of the utopian society is nothing new. It's what Rome was chasing. It's what Hitler was chasing. In a lot of ways, it's what we're, we're chasing even now. This idea that we can have a world that's perfect, that we can stop suffering and stop pain through enough control and enough government, all of these kinds of things. It's a lie. We're still dust. We're still dust. He goes on in verse 10. He says, we, or he says I have seen... Again, this is Solomon observing life. He says, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's, he's observing that we are busy people. Are we like the busiest generation in, the war, in, in history? We are insanely busy. I was talking to the midweek service on this Wednesday. We are so busy. We're in the industrial revolution. I mean, we, have, we, we don't even have to get water. We don't have to start fires. We don't have to do any of this stuff. We should be able to just like have so much time on our hands, but we are the busiest people ever. We fill our lives to the brim to, again, distract ourselves, don't we? To distract ourselves. We don't want to have to think about the fact that we're dissatisfied, that we're thirsty. He goes on in verse 11. He said, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, in the middle of this text, it's almost like a breath of fresh air. Like, oh, maybe Solomon's saying something positive here. Oh, but everything's beautiful in its season. He's actually saying the most depressing thing in the whole text. Everything is beautiful in its time. This is one of the biggest reasons that we as humans ache, because things don't last. They don't last. The flower dies, the friendships end, the people move away. Your kids grow up and move out. The seasons that were so good turn into seasons that aren't so good. Money runs out, health quits. Your joints and your bones start to ache, crack. Nothing lasts. From the dust we came into the dust we return. That's what God said in Genesis, right? So basically our life has become this cyclical life of being blown from one side, to blown to the other. <laughs> We were designed with souls that long to live forever, and now we wrestle with this reality of death that was never even intended to be. Romans 8.20, if you're familiar with it, it says, for the creation, okay, the earth, the dust, the dirt, for you and I, all of it, creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. What is futility? It's this feeling of just pointlessness. That, that even though life has good seasons, even though things go good for a while, and everyone has good seasons. There are very seemingly happy non-Christians out and seemingly happy Christians that are aching in other seasons. Seasons of good, seasons of hurt. What, Romans, what Paul says to Romans is that it's all subject to futility. It's just sort of there, feeling pointless. Solomon observes it. The thing is that we hate the fact that seasons end, don't we? We don't want them to end. So we try to become God and we try to control them. And again, our culture is not only good at distracting ourselves, our culture is not only good at being busy, our culture is really good at trying to keep seasons. Isn't it? It's really good at trying to keep seasons. I don't want to look old. I'm going to get plastic surgery. Right? I don't want my kids to grow, out, so I'm, grow up and move out, so I'm going to be controlling and try to keep them in the house, keep paying their bills or whatever it is. 
We, we try to control everything. Control our spouses. I don't want them to leave, so I'm going to be really controlling with them. I don't want this season to end because you're making them something they were never intended to be. You're making that person something it was never intended to be. You're making your body something it was never intended to be. Your body is dust. Your kids are dust. Your wife, your husband, your job, your house, it's dust. It's nothing. It can't satisfy you. And it will, listen to me, it will blow away if it hasn't already. What will you do when it blows away? Because you can't keep it. You can't. We all fear losing good things. But the reality of living in the dirt is that things blow away eventually. Just the reality of living in the dirt. Verse 12, this is his sort of conclusion before his real conclusion. Verse 12, he says, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful, to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. What's Solomon saying here? Is this hedonism? Solomon, are you saying, oh yeah, well, life is pretty much miserable and lame, so, you know, grab a soda, grab a burger, grab a Kit Kat bar, grab your recliner, and just live it up, okay? Is that what he's saying? Well, let's be honest for a minute, okay? If we didn't know better, isn't that sort of what we would arrive at? Man, if life sucks so bad, let's just make the best of it. Isn't that how most of people live in the world? Isn't that how most of us live just by nature? Life's going to be hard, so I might as well just do what I can to make it good now. If things are going to go away. If things are going to get worse. If things are hard, if, if, if at my core I'm dissatisfied, then I'm going to do whatever I can in the moment to just satisfy myself. And, and, and I would say, yeah, okay, that's the answer, Solomon, except for he goes on. He isn't in there. Solomon says this tongue-in-cheek, right? He says, if, if, if that's it, if that's the only purpose, then yeah. But that's not the only purpose. So what is the question he's asking? Let's boil down the question of what Solomon's asking here. He's essentially saying this. Why would God make eternal beings with eternal longings and then allow them to indulge themselves on things that won't satisfy? Why would God allow us to continually indulge ourselves, especially Americans, on things that are dust? Why? Why does he do that? Why would God give us a thirst that we can't quench? It seems cruel, doesn't it? Why must we hurt and be disappointed by the world time and time again? How are we to bear the, the weight of this tension in our souls between heaven and earth? And why, why does there have to be so much pain? Why does God give us physical gifts and then rip them away? What's the point of that? Anybody ever asked these questions before? If you haven't, then you're not human, Okay? This is what it is to be human, is to hurt, is to lose things, is to ask these questions. Why does God bless some with more earthly comfort and others with not? And how do we live out earthly lives with heavenly longings? This is the question that Solomon is asking here. How do we do this thing called life? How do we do this thing called being a human being? When everything is dust and there's no water anywhere. And then he answers the question. Are you ready? Verse 14. He says, I perceived... That whatever God does endures forever. What he's basically saying, first of all, is, is whatever God does is not dust. You think that what your life is is dust, but what God is actually using that for something more than that. And he goes on, nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. And this is, this is the, the cherry on top. God has done it so that people fear before him. 
This is Solomon's answer. Now, when I first read that, I thought, oh, man, that's not the answer I wanted. It's not what I was looking for. You mean all of this pain and all of this stuff that we have to trudge through and the muck and the mire of life and the disappointment and the ache in my bones is all so that I can learn to fear God? What does that even mean? What is it to fear him? Fearing him is simply this. Fearing him means knowing your place. It means knowing your place. Fearing him means knowing who you are and who you aren't. Can I say that again? Fearing him means knowing who you are and knowing who you aren't. And even more than that, fearing him means knowing who you are and knowing who he is. It's knowing your place. It's understanding how God made you. It's understanding what your purpose is. Fearing him means understanding that he is the only thing that matters. That he is all value, not the dirt that you've been chasing, right? God wants to teach you that you are nothing so that he can teach you that you're everything to him. Can you write that down? God wants to teach you that you are nothing so that he can teach you, so that he can teach you that you are everything to him. Before you can learn that you are everything to him, you must learn that you are nothing, that you are dust without him. Before God can let you see that you're a son and a daughter of the Most High God, a prince and a princess, royalty of the Most High God, he must first show you that you are dirt. And how does he do that? Listen, God's going to allow one of three things in your life, okay? It's really simple. Either he's going to allow you to suckle yourself and feed yourself pleasure to the point where, where you're sick, yeah? He'll allow you to feel, secondly, or he'll allow you to feel the pain of life till you're sick. Or he will allow a mixture of both. It doesn't really matter. He will use both means. Why are some people rich and some people poor? And why do some people have an easy life and some people have a bad life? It doesn't matter. It all leads to the same place. It all leads to sickness. If you're rich, you're sick. One of my heroes just committed suicide, Dave Meir. He was 40 years old. He won the X Games like 12 times. This guy was like, he was like a god in the world of BMX. He did every trick you could think of and he committed suicide. Why? Because he was sick. He was sick. God will allow you to either take the pleasure of this world to the point where you are sick and you don't want it anymore. Or he will allow you to realize this world has nothing for you by giving you nothing. But either way, the point, all that God does is for a reason. And that reason is that you, church, that you, human being, okay, coworker that you work with, whoever it is, they need to know this. Life is happening so that you might fear God. His purpose in all of life and everything that we go through is to show you that dirt is not enough, that you need more. Romans chapter 8, I'm going to throw it up on the screen here and we'll read it together. Romans, Paul totally gets this. Romans chapter 8, 18. He says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation, which is the what? Dust, okay? The creation with weights eager, longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope 
that the creation itself, that the what itself? Creation, the dust, the earth, the ground, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have had the first fruits of the Spirit. Creation is groaning for more. You, apart from God, are groaning for more. Your unsaved relatives and coworkers and friends are groaning for more. Everything in them wants more. And everything in them will be dissatisfied by the dust of this world. It is in, listen to me guys, this is the whole point, okay? It is in the ache and the pain and the sorrow and the discontentment of this life and of this world that we finally let go of the world so God can present himself as the better thing. I mean, we have to realize it's, not, it's got nothing for us. The world has nothing for me. And God can teach that through many different avenues, but all of which lead to the same point, and that is that he is greater than dust. That is the point. God wants to use the inadequacy of the earth to show you his, that he is the ultimate joy that he is the greatest good for you. Now, let's get into the practical of this. Why is this important? If you're, if you're taking notes, write this down. Three reasons why this is important. We'll go through these quickly. Number one, this understanding, this truth, frees you from expectations and entitlement. You understand that? If you see that the world is dirt, and that your life is dirt, and your health is dirt, and your marriage is dirt, you don't expect anything out of it. This world is nothing that I expect from it because God is everything that I need. So that means that you're sort of impervious to pain if you can really believe that. Yeah, your, your, your wife walks out on you. Your, your, your kid says he hates you. You lose your job. Your, your health fails. You get cancer. Were you really expecting life to be anything different? That's not where joy is found. I'm not belittling that pain, but I am saying that if you want the mechanism by which to cope with the garbage of this life, it's right here. It's understanding that you don't expect anything from the world, Christian. Jesus has it all. Number two, this is important because it allows you to file pain and injustice correctly in your mind. When you turn on the news and you see ISIS cutting people's heads off, and you see ethnic cleansings in Africa, you see people, uh, you see babies getting Zika virus, and you say, how is this possible? How can God allow this? You say, God is working all things for very specific reasons that man might fear him. It's all for a purpose, and you can believe that. Number three, why is it important? It shows us that when we ache, it's because we long for more than dirt. So what that means is, is that when you feel depressed, when you feel frustrated, you know why. It's not because you need more food. It's not because you need more friends. It's not because you need a, a promotion. You ache because you need Jesus. You know. You know why. The implications of this are that the good seasons show us that good isn't good enough, right? Man, when you have a good season, you say, praise the Lord. I'm in this season right now where, my, where, where I'm just so blessed. And I keep, I keep being worried, you know. Like, Man, what's going to happen? 
It's just, it's bad. It's like when I went snowboarding the other day, you know, I'm just trying to learn and I'm carving down the hill and it's going good and it's been like five minutes and I think to myself, oh man, it's been a while since I got in an accident. It's been a while since I wrecked. Like, you ever think that driving? Like, oh, it's been a while since I got in a car wreck, you know? Horrible thinking, right? It's horrible. It's a horrible way to think. But the implications of that, the implications of that is that you realize that these good seasons can also teach you that God is enough because it's still not enough. Man, I'm so blessed right now. I love my wife. I have beautiful kids. We just got to move into a new house and all these good things are happening. And that's great. But I still am just reminding, this isn't enough though. Good is never good enough. There's never enough. You'll always want more. Let the good seasons teach you that, okay? Let the good seasons teach you that. The bad seasons give us perspective. I've never had better perspective than the moments where I was in the most pain. The moments where I had nothing to cry out to but God. And I had the most clarity, the most perspective in those moments because I knew who had answers and who had hope and who had life and it was him, right? Not me. I knew in that moment of pain where to go. And that's what defines us as Christians. We know where to go for life. We know where to go for hope. God wants the greatest good for you. And do you know what that greatest good is? It's not that race. That may happen. God wants the greatest good for you. It may not be that, that girl or that guy that you like. The greatest good for you is what? God. He is the greatest good for you. That's why we don't believe in the prosperity gospel. Our life, we do not exist in order to have faith and then get things. That's, that's such a shallow version of life. Our life exists that we might have faith that we get God because he is so much better than that bonus check. He's just better than everything. He's better than every good thing in our life. He is the ultimate treasure. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's the portion. So how do we do this? Okay, it's a little bit more practical and we'll, we'll, we'll go eat lunch. How do we live this out? If you're taking notes, be a preacher, okay? Be a preacher. I, when, you, when you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, the first thing it says in, in, uh, in chapter one, verse one, it says, the words of the preacher, the son of David. The words of the preacher. Well, what is a preacher? A, a preacher is just someone simply that, that speaks into someone's life or speaks into a situation. It's someone that speaks up. Says, I have a message. I need to declare this message, okay? That's a preacher, okay? Now, what, what you need to do to understand this and to believe this is to preach to yourself and others, but start with yourself. Preach to yourself. Preach two things to yourself daily, and then we'll be done. Number one, preach every day to yourself the emptiness of this world. When you turn on the news and you see what's going on, say, man, this world is bleak. And don't become a cynic. Become a realist. It is bleak. God said it was bleak. Solomon noticed it was bleak. Jesus knew it was bleak. That's why he had to come fix it. Okay, so, so number one, preach emptiness of this world to yourself. Man, I love my car. This is such a nice car, but man, it's empty. There's nothing here for me. I'm blessed. I'm so glad that I have my family, but just don't forget. Don't forget, Sam. Your family's not your joy. Your family's not your hope. Your family's not it. You haven't arrived, okay? Preach that self to yourself every stinking day. Everything should be seen as a good thing, but not a God thing, right? 
Feeling pain and seeing brokenness only solidifies our need for Jesus, okay? So preach to yourself constantly. Every time you feel pain, every time you feel anything, preach to yourself. It's empty. God's more. So that's what Solomon is doing. It's a whole book of Ecclesiastes. He just goes through everything in life and says, that's vain, that's vain, that's vain, that's pointless, that's pointless. And then he gets to the end and he finally says, but God is it. Let's live lives like that. And then number two, and this is important, not only, don't only preach the emptiness of this world, but preach to yourself the gospel, okay? Preach the gospel, because here's the reality, and I could have spent the whole sermon on this right here, so hopefully it makes sense. The gospel is this, that God became dust so that you could become heaven. Did you catch that? That God became the dirt and climbed, out, climbed off of his throne and inhabited a human body and experienced brokenness and experienced pain and experienced anxiety and experienced all the things that we experienced and sweat drops of blood and went to a cross and his hands pierced and was mocked and beaten and betrayed and all of these things that we experienced so that he could reconnect heaven to earth so that we, through Christ, can be heavenly again so that we aren't just dirt. That's the good news. That's what you need to preach to yourself every day. This earth has nothing for me, and Jesus is the only answer. He's the only answer. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Amen? So here's my prayer for us as a church. My prayer is that we would live raw and honest lives. That's, that's a real core thing at Heritage. I don't know if you guys know that or not. If you're new, if you're visiting, a real core thing for us at this church is that we're raw. Okay, we're not trying to look like we are perfect spiritual human beings because we are not. We are jacked. Okay, that doesn't mean that we make dirty jokes and say it's okay. What that means is that we are okay with understanding that we are jacked. It means when we read the Bible and we read about Solomon and we read about David, we, read about, we don't say, oh, they were good guys. No, they were horrible guys. Okay, and we're worse. That's how we live life. Because that shows us that the gospel is all that matters. Okay, that's, that's a core thing. For, so what, my hope in all this is that we would be people that are willing to talk about the garbage in the world with the perspective of how God redeems it. Okay, let's talk about it. Life is hard. Let's get into it. That's what your unsaved colleagues want you to, to connect with them on. That's what they want you to engage them on. Why is life so hard? I can tell you. Okay, you can tell them. My prayer is that we would not see our pain and our longing and our ache and our depression as pointless. It's not pointless. It's all for a purpose. And whatever you're going through right now, understand that. It's for a purpose. It's for a reason. God is using it all that you might fear him. Amen? Let's stand together, guys. So, Father, we conclude this morning, God, by admitting to you, to everyone, to ourselves, that we're just dust, that we have nothing to offer. We have no spirit in us aside from you. We have no life in us aside from the life that you've given us. And that's why you sent your Holy Spirit to live within us, God. So, Father, we just, right now, God, we lift our hands even to you, and we acknowledge to you, God, that we need you, that we need your breath of life again to breathe into the dust of our bones and make us live, God. Make us feel life. 
And God, would you do whatever it takes, as scary as it is to pray this, Father, would you do whatever it takes to make us enjoy you as the greatest good and stop selling ourselves short with dirt? God, we love you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the humility and the growth that I see in these people, my brothers and sisters in Christ. God, we love you so much. Thank you for being a king and a father and a friend. In Jesus' name.